Welcome back. It's Pastor Lars Hammer here from Lord of Grace Lutheran Church in Marana, Arizona. I want to welcome you back to the second installment of my little, uh, I guess you call them classes or uh, commentaries on some of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's writings in his letters that he did from the Tegel prison uh, towards the end of his life. Uh, he was in the Tegel prison again for about a year and a half. Uh, after he got caught being a part of a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. The last six months of his life, they moved him to a Gestapo prison, and he was not seen again. Uh, he was then hung only within a few weeks of the end of World War II. A very tragic story. But these are some of the letters that he wrote to his pastor friend, Eberhard Betge. And again, as he was uh, reflecting on his life and his work and reflecting on his own beliefs in lieu of World War II and the changing times, he started formulating this idea of a religionless Christianity. So I thought I would look a little bit at that. That's what this series is about. If you missed the first one, I did include a link in the description. You can go back and check that one. I'll apologize again for the choppiness at the beginning. We had a technical problem. So it was, there was no audio for the first three and a half minutes, so I cut that out and, and pasted in a uh, clumsy reintroduction. Anyways, hopefully this one will go smoother, but you check out that first one. And again, as always, I do encourage you to check out a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and look at his life. It's really amazing stuff. Uh, just make sure you don't get the biography by Eric Metaxas. Uh, he does lots of revisionist history and tries to make Bonhoeffer into something he isn't. So anyways, we are going today to pick up again uh, on some of Bonhoeffer's thoughts on, as I said, religionless Christianity and what does that mean. Uh, I, I'll give my, my background I'll always give is that Bonhoeffer is writing from a context of a state church. And a state church is not something most of us in America quite understand how the European state churches work. But in the state churches, your revenue comes from the government. Uh, authority of the church ultimately rests in the government. And being a part of the church is the same thing as being a part of the country. There, there's no difference. You're automatically a member of the church. Uh, when I lived in Sweden back in the 80s, and I know this has changed since then, but the default was that if even one of your parents was a member of the state church, you were automatically a member and you had to opt out. You had to fill out a form to opt out. It saved you some money on your taxes, but um, you meant you couldn't get a funeral in the church. Now I think they've switched that. You have to opt in. And I think the same is true in Germany. But anyways, back in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's time, 30s and 40s, the church and the state were absolutely together. And so concepts of discipleship, uh, what is my individual path as a follower of Jesus? Those weren't really questions people were asking. The, the way I am a good follower of Jesus is by being a good German citizen. They, they were completely one and the same. And it didn't create a good structure for being critical of the government and the authorities when they were using the church in a bad way, as happened in, with under the Nazis. So, but he's trying to do this, and Bonhoeffer's at a place now in these letters where he's starting to talk about uh, how can we talk about religion when the assumptions we had about religion are gone. In the past, I used kind of the, the, the story of a, the analogy of a foundation, right? Somebody pulled the foundation out of your house. I think in this way, it's a little bit more, let me give you a different analogy this time. 
we're trying to talk about God and Christianity uh, where in, in a place where those terms, there's all sorts of assumptions we bring to those terms that we can't anymore. Like think of the word family, for example. Uh, often a very contested word in American politics, but think of the word family. Uh, I think there was a time in American history when you could say the word family and it conjured up a certain image, right? In the 50s, husband, wife, 2.3 kids. You know, th there was all sorts of assumptions. And when you say a word, there's all sorts of things, connotations that we kind of pile into that word. And we do that unconsciously. Well, now in 2022, you say the word family, it means lots of different things and lots of different arrangements. And how do we then continue to talk about family as a society, how to structure family and how do we organize families and what's the best kind of families? Uh, we have to do that and we have to go back and have a more foundational discussion. Um, one of the things I think you'll see in kind of as I make this analogy with American politics is that there is clearly a movement within America to restore the earlier definition of family, regardless of to what extent it actually was true in the 50s and 60s. But there's a desire to reclaim the old definition of it rather than allow the word to be spoken of in a new way. So I think that he's look, talking about is coming to his faith with a similar kind of thing. It used to be when we would say words like God and salvation and justification that there was a whole host of meanings that we all had and we kind of inherited those meanings growing up and we'd been taught them in school. And if those meanings underneath are gone, how can we, taught, use, the, how can we use those words and have them have meaning when the, all those assumptions underneath are getting eroded? That's the large, larger project that he's doing, the larger reflection that he's having. And so, all right, well, let's get today uh, I'm going to move over and we'll get started. We'll look at some of his stuff uh, where he starts particularly talking about how to speak of God and what kind of God language he would use. So we'll move over and we'll start to read uh, from page, uh, it's, it would be two, one, 281 in the book, uh, the letters from prison as they're printed. And um, as I say, I'll read through it and give you, give you my unofficial commentary and my sort of thoughts on it. Hopefully it'll help you understand it a little better. So here, here we go. I find, after all, that I can write a little more. The Pauline question, whether circumcision is a condition of justification, seems to me in present day terms to be whether religion is a condition of salvation. Freedom from peritome is also freedom from religion. I often ask myself why a Christian instinct uh, draws me more to the religion-less people than to the religious, by which I don't in the least mean with any evangelizing intent. Uh, but I, might, I mention, I, oh, I'm sorry, I might almost say in brotherhood. While I'm often, too, I'm often reluctant to mention God by name to religious people because that name somehow seems to me here not to ring true. And I feel myself to be slightly dishonest if uh, it's particularly bad when others start to use talk in religious jargon. I then dry up almost completely and feel awkward and uncomfortable. To people with no religion, I can on occasion mention him by name 
quite calmly and as a matter of course. Sorry for me kind of jumbling that there. Um, Bonhoeffer talks very tight, right? He speaks in a very tight kind of language. So let's look it out. Let's pick this apart a bit here. Okay, circumcision. He gets to the question of circumcision. That's his example. That's his comparison. Circumcision, we know from the Apostle Paul, uh, was a big debate. Read through a book like Galatians. There was a huge debate about whether one needed to become circumcised to become a Christian. Did one have to go through the Jewish rite to become Jewish in order to become Christian? And Paul said, uh, no, you don't. He basically came down on saying you do not have to be circumcised. And this is the analogy Bonhoeffer is using. Do I have to have religion as a precondition to talk about God? Now, again, you have to go back, <coughs> excuse me, and I ask the question, what does he mean by religion? I think he has a, an idea in his head of these things. He doesn't define it. He never got around to writing the book where he would define it. But I think in his mind he knows what it is, and I think to his friend Eberhard Betke, he assumes he knows what he's talking about too. What, what does he mean? Is he talking about uh, doctrines? Is he talking about church rituals? Is he talking about denominational structures, institutional structures? Is he talking about some combination of these? Uh, it's a good question. I think it's a legitimate question that we ask ourselves if some of those things aren't needed. You know, can we have Christian faith without all the doctrines we used to have? Can we have Christian faith without the institutional structures? Uh, are those things helpful or harmful? Uh, you can fill uh, libraries with that debate. Uh, being somebody who's in an institutional, denominational church structure, I can tell you that I've kind of seen it both ways, right? I've worked with people who are completely out on the non-denominational free market, uh, and I've worked within denominational churches, and I see pluses and minuses to both. I, I, you know, I do think that every community has to have some sort of common beliefs and some common system of discipline or way of keeping order. You gotta have some way of keeping out bad apples and troublemakers and people who would do harm to others, right? So you, and then you end up having to have some sort of systems and questions arise and you end up having to have core beliefs. I think every organization does that. Uh, and um, it, I, it's hard for me to imagine that Bonhoeffer is really just wanting everyone to be sort of solitary individuals who just follow Jesus in their own completely private, unattached to any community kind of way. Uh, so again, it would have been helpful for him to define religion a little bit more, but we'll follow it, right? We can follow it uh, along the line of thought. Um, and I ask these questions, of course, you know, what he means by religion, because like I, I've mentioned, I, I lived in Sweden for a couple years as a kid, and I got to see uh, what has happened in a country that's maybe one of the most secular countries on earth, which has a state church with beautiful buildings, uh, well-paid staff, you know, it financially was everything that a lot of pastors would want, and yet most of the time the pews were pretty empty. Uh, we were in a pretty active church. I think we had a whole hundred people a week. Uh, we were considered one of the bigger, activer churches in the country. Most of them would be a dozen or less. And uh, so I've kind of seen what happens if you detach yourself from any community. You know, how often do people actually practice? If somebody says, 
you know, I'm spiritual but not religious. I always say, well, what does that mean? How do you practice your non-religious spirituality? How do you engage your spirituality? Uh, sometimes it looks kind of Buddhist, right? I'm going to try to do meditation. Sometimes it doesn't really look like anything. They haven't thought about that. The phrase is kind of a catchphrase for just sort of, I think there may be maybe something out there. I'm not ruling it out, but I don't actually do anything about it. Um, sometimes it devolves into what I call the good person stuff, that good person idea, right? Um, and you would get a lot of this in Sweden. The idea that I am living out my Christian faith by voting for the Social Democratic Party, which would raise lots of income taxes and provide a strong social safety net. And I, I've heard that from American liberals as well, that, you know, yeah, Swedes don't go to church and worship much, but they're, they're, they're more Christian because look at how they take care of each other. Uh, you know, I think there's a, valid, there's a valid critique there that I think maybe in America we don't take care of each other. But is that really what Jesus was talking about? I mean, Jesus were operated within an institutional religion and he went to the synagogues all the time. Uh, and he talked about the scriptures all the time and he hung out with Pharisees and Sadducees and temple priests and he debated them and he discussed them. And, you know, so he seemed to spend a lot of time deeply involved in the institutional religion of his time and the doctrines and the scriptures. So it didn't seem like what Jesus was really after was sort of a, a, a religion that's sort of completely privatized and individualistic. That doesn't seem consistent with what Jesus wants, and I think Bonhoeffer would understand that uh, as much as he understood uh, the Bible. But I think that's part of why he's asking the question, because the religion of his day he had a lot of problems with. But there he's asking the new question, what replaces it, right? Um, I think about, uh, again, going back to Europe, uh, if you look at the track record of what's happened since World War II, I think you've started to see a lot of what happens when you don't have religious practice, right? So before World War II, for the most part, Europeans still went to church in decent numbers. And they practiced, and families would read their Bibles at home, my Swedish ancestors. They didn't need a Sunday school. They did that at home with their own devotions. And the father was expected as head of the household to go, and he'd run these devotions, and they would do that. Well, within the next generation, the people started saying, well, you know, I'm a good Christian, I just don't worship as much, right? I don't need to go to worship to be a good Christian. And then you find that within the next generation, now the majority of Western Europeans are atheists. So it went real quickly from pra institutional practice to atheism. You know, so I would tend to say, okay, if we're going to have religionless Christianity, we still have to have some sort of community and practice, or it just turns into nothingness. I don't think most of us are that self-disciplined with our spiritual lives that we're going to sit down as solitary individuals and read our Bibles and push ourselves to be more Christ-like if there's no accountability. Kind of think of it like, remember the jocks in your high school? Who, who, were the guy, who were the guys that were always sort of on top of the pecking order and they usually were quite ripped. And I had bunches of them in my class. They were three-sport athletes. That was the thing back then. Nowadays, it's hard to be a three-sport athlete because you train year-round. But, I mean, these guys, they were ripped, right? And all of their working out was because somebody told them to work out. They always had a coach 
telling them what to do. And as long as there was a coach telling them what to do and organizing the practices, and, and there was sort of the, the, the stick of dad making you and the carrot of, of school prestige, they always did well, right? But what happened after they graduated? Well, this is, again, kind of cliche, but several of them did not continue their athletic endeavors when they lacked that accountability and have not shown up at reunions because they are not, shall we say, even remotely as buff as they once were, right? Um, and now suddenly I, the drama nerd, am coming in in better shape than the quarterback who won't show up. Why? Because he didn't have the structure and the discipline to follow through on it. And it isn't like it's, you know, his coaches were it was about you know being forced against his will he chose to submit to those practices but I think as human beings we don't tend to uh, we don't tend to engage in things like reflective practices on our own very well life happens and we get busy and other things are on our to-do list and other things are pressuring us and so who's got time to sit and do devotions uh, who's got time to sit down and you know engage in a uh, self-critique of how, how Christ-like have I really been lately? Um, I, we, I, think that's, I think there's a good question there. All right, um, and then uh, the next part about religion, I guess maybe, that I, I'd raise uh, is I think what one of the things Bonhoeffer might be going for is the idea of religion and the practices being a substitute for the individual conviction and the individual action and the individual faith. And what do I mean by that? Um, again, I'll, I, I, I talk in analogies, but I think back on COVID, right? The last couple of years, this has thrown all our churches for a monkey wrench, right? We were going along fine, or we thought we were going along fine. And then COVID hits, and what do we do? We suddenly, we have to shut down our churches, and then we have to start doing all these protocols, and then came the dreaded masks, right? And what did we get all over the country? Mask wars and shutdown battles. And some of them got really nasty. Uh, I can think of pastors in, you know, in our denomination who would say, you know, look, I have a respiratory illness. I, I shouldn't get up there uh, in front of a whole group of people breathing on me. And there was one church, I want to say South Carolina, I don't remember exactly, uh, they had a pastor in this situation, uh, and he said, look, it's, it's not good for my health. And they basically said, get up there without a mask on or you're fired. Now, in our system, if you just fire a pastor, there's severance and there's a process. There's a cost to it. <coughs> but they said, we don't care what the cost is. Uh, we are not going to let the government tell us that we can't have our religion. We, we, we have our religious freedom, our religious rights, and the government's not going to tell us, and we're not going to have those taken away from us, right? So they, they basically told him, get up there else, and he looked at his wife and said, we'll be okay, we'll be okay, and he got up there and then got COVID and died. And within days of the funeral, the head of the board called the bishop. Well, you're going to send us someone else? We need a replacement. And the bishop's like, well, aren't you grieving the previous pastor just died and you know he's like well we need a replacement the bishop said no <laughs> i'm not saying i'm not recommending anybody to your church but it was such a extreme example most of us had smaller examples right you know but to me what i saw was a christ-like response seemed to me to be if i'm following jesus's example of 
love, and sacrificing of myself for the good of others, I would gladly sacrifice um, getting to sit inside at worship and instead will gladly endure the inconvenience of sitting outside if that saves someone's life because I love my neighbor. I will gladly put a mask on even though I hate those things. I will gladly do it out of love and compassion for my neighbor. That seemed like a Christ-like response, right? I should give and sacrifice for love of neighbor. And when you get churches full of these people flying off the handle going, no, I ain't wearing no mask and I ain't sitting outside and you can't make me because I have religious rights. And I think about that and then I was reading Bonhoeffer and I'm like, oh, now I get what he's talking about. The religion has become more important than the Christ. When you are becoming very unchrist-like in the interest of defending your religious practices and defending your religion, you end up, instead of religionless Christianity, you end up with Christless religion. And I saw a lot of Christless religion during COVID, right? This insistence that we're going to meet in person without masks, breathe on one another, to hell if people, if people get sick and die, it's not my problem. That's such an unchrist-like attitude. And when you are acting unchrist-like to defend your religion of Jesus Christ, then you've got it backwards. When you are, and you can see this in uh, various you know, attempts of churches to try to argue for their religious rights, you know, essentially your religious right to be mean. If you're being mean, for, if you're being mean and cruel in the interest of protecting your right to worship Jesus, then your religion has become more important than the Christ. So you've got Christless religion is a lot of it. Uh, and for Bonhoeffer, the Christless religion was the churches and the institutional church was protecting itself uh, by selling out to Hitler. And I think we kind of forget that. You know, it's easy for us to sit as armchair quarterbacks and say, well, why didn't all those churches stand up against Hitler? Well, people who stood up generally died, uh, and they died in a pretty brutal way. But the other part of it was, you know, in a state church, the government pays your bills. The government is your employer. You, you don't bite the hand that feeds you, right? And so uh, it quickly became Christless religion, where the practices uh, and the traditions and the beliefs and the institutions that all have a good purpose, they became the substitute for Christ. All right, let's keep going a little bit here. I had a big, long excursus, but that's what I do, I guess. Uh, we'll go down. Freedom from peritome is also freedom from religion. Peritome, that's just the Greek word for circumcision. That's all that means. So, Frida, he, he's comparing the two, right? I don't have to go through a circumcision. I shouldn't have to go through religion. I, can, can I have? And he doesn't say I can have Christ without it, but I don't have to go through it. It's not a precondition. So, I often ask myself, he says, um, uh, why a Christian instinct often draws me more to the religion-less people than to the religious. Now, I thought about this for a minute, uh, and you know, he's a professor. Bonhoeffer's a professor, so yeah, he's ordained as a pastor, but he spent most of his life in teaching, and he's very well educated. Here's a guy who has wrestled with his faith, struggled with it, uh, literally put himself out on the line for it. Uh, suffered for it, 
And his faith is deeply reflective, deeply tested, deeply thought out. Uh, I could imagine it being very hard if you've, had, if you've kind of gone through all that to then go and listen to unreflective, unthought out, rigid, simplistic, judgmental religion, that it would be real hard to do that. Um, it'd be real hard to go and participate, you know, try to be a parish pastor and go into a parish. And I'm, I'm not saying this of all parishes, but just imagine one existed where everybody was quite literalistic and rigid in their thinking and judgmental. And you've wrestled with what does it mean to be Christ? And they're like, you know, they're busy wrestling with uh, whether we should move the Paschal candle. And you just can't get yourself interested in that. You just can't care. Um, yes, there's a part of it that could potentially have a snobby side of it. Uh, I think anytime you get really, really advanced or deeply thought out in a subject, it gets easy to look down on those who haven't. I'm sure even those people who outfit uh, four-wheel drives look down with a certain snobbery on those who don't. Um, the Forerunner Club uh, in Tucson has a rule that we will not make fun of people who do not customize their forerunners um, because those things can become competitions of who can pile the more gear on top of their vehicle. Uh, but they're aware of it and deliberately trying to not be snobby. So yes, there's a place that could be snobby, but people, you know, I, I've asked myself more than once, like, you know, driven through a, a, a certain town and I would say, okay, say I moved to this town. Uh, do I see, what, what churches do I see? And sometimes I'll go through a town and all I see are these Bible-thumping, fundamentalist, you know, places. And I don't deny that they are valid Christian churches or that Jesus isn't present or anything like that. But I asked myself, if I, if I got somehow transferred here in a different world and, I don't know, I sold farm insurance or something and I got transferred here and I'm in this small town, and those are the only churches where, all the ch where every church in town is, you know, evolution isn't real, uh, Bible is literal, uh, gays are going to hell, uh, evolution isn't real, global warming doesn't happen, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. I couldn't listen to that every week. I probably couldn't listen to that one or two weeks. And is it because I think I'm better than them? I, try and, I hope I don't think I'm better than them, but I certainly can't endorse that stuff. You know, I, I couldn't be a part of that. I'd have to have a church that, I'd have to find a church that's more open-minded and thoughtful. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I just couldn't be a part of a place that's so filled with that sense of rigidity or that sense of fear that are, are, we're always under threat. Um, I just couldn't be a part of that kind of religion. If that's what it was, then I would say I'm out. Or I'd have to go try to start my own little uh, church. We'd see how that would go. But, you know, so I get it. I get sort of his struggle and why he's saying, and he's admitting that it's a struggle, right? Um, that he is often drawn more to the non-religious people than the religious. Because his struggle, the things that, things that bother him are religious things that bother him, right? Um, okay, uh, he's reluctant. We'll jump down another more. Well, I'm reluctant to mention God by name to religious people. Uh, because that name somehow seems to me here not to ring true. Kind of interesting. That even the word God, he gets afraid, he's afraid to even join into the conversation to talk about God. Uh, 
because the people he's talking with, it means things to them it doesn't mean to him. And he doesn't want to look like he's endorsing or playing along with what they believe. I, I think in some ways he's probably got an image in his head of, the, of, of sort of the, I had to say a straw man, but there's kind of a, a type in his head of what this sort of religion is that he doesn't want to be a part of. Uh, and I think it errs on the negative side, I get that. Um, but yeah, he, he almost doesn't want to, he almost doesn't want to join in. It's like, you know, I'm a pastor and sometimes I go into weddings and they, they say oh, at the reception, uh, oh, the pastor will put him with the, with the religious relatives. And I end up sitting with some guy who's a total Bible thumper and, and I'm really like, oh God, do I have to listen to him talk about how bad the schools are getting because they're undermining evolution and they don't have prayer anymore? Um, and, and, you know, could you, why couldn't you just put me with you your, your, at another table? You know, that's kind of the feeling you get, right? I really don't want to sit with that person. Okay. Um, and then he says, interesting line, he goes down a little bit for, uh, it's particularly bad when others start to talk in religious jargon. Oh, says the guy who uses the word peritome to talk about uh, circumcision. I, I think he must be talking about um, maybe, maybe certain kind of pat phrases or pious phrases. Uh, for example, um, you know, I, I guess it's probably how I'd feel like, you know, as a Lutheran, uh, when you run into a Bible thumper and they come up to you and they say, well, I know you were baptized, but have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Which is this extremely loaded phrase that interestingly isn't in the Bible in those words. Uh, and Jesus never says you have to accept me as your personal Lord and Savior, and Paul doesn't say that. Uh, a, fr a phrase like Lord and Savior is in there, but um, you know, if somebody comes up and they say that, you know, I would be tempted to go, well, what do you mean by accepted? What do you mean by personal? What, what, what do you mean by savior? What are you saving me from? I mean, you know, I, I've been saved by God's grace and I've been a part of God's family as long as I've been around. My faith has ebbed and flowed, it has grown. I never made a personal decision, but I really believe that God's with me. I reject the assumptions behind your question. I can't answer your question because I reject the assumptions behind your question. You know, I, I think that's part of what Bonhoeffer's getting at. He rejects the assumptions. It's sort of like if someone comes up to you and goes, what's the best tool to use when you beat your wife? And I would go, I reject the assumptions behind that question. There is no tool, there is no good way, um, so I'm not gonna answer that, right? Uh, and so when you're hanging out with religious people who use sort of pious religious jargon and you don't agree with the assumptions behind it, it gets really difficult, right? All right, let's move on to the next slide. This is all from the same two pages, 281, 282. He says, Religious people speak of God when human knowledge, perhaps simply because they are too lazy to think, has come to an end or when human resources fail. In fact, it is always the deus ex machina that they bring on to the scene, either for the apparent solution of insoluble problems or as a strength in human failure. Always, that is to say, exploiting human weakness or human boundaries. Of necessity, 
that can go on only till people can, by their own strength, push these boundaries somewhat further out so that God becomes superfluous as a deus ex machina. So the guy who hates religious jargon is talking about the deus ex machina. Um, uh, okay, what's going on here? He's reflecting. When human knowledge comes to an end, that line there, this is the sort of God of the gaps theory that atheists are always making fun of, that claims that uh, what religious people do is where they don't know an answer, they just say God. Well, we don't know what's in the end. We don't know what's out there. God did it. We don't know why the universe is expanding. God's stretching it. We, we, don't know. we don't know why we're suffering, but God's on the other side of it. There's a real sense in a lot of ways that that's how a lot of Christian apologetics has tried to defend God, you know, by saying, well, we don't, we don't know all the answers, so it must be God. And the scientist's answer is, well, we don't know all the answers, but if we keep pushing farther, we'll, we'll get closer. And it's a little bit like Neil deGrasse Tyson saying, just because you don't know who built something doesn't mean it was aliens. Right? And that, that's kind of what God of the gaps does. You know, it imposes God where our knowledge fails, where we can't get any farther. And it provides a certain comfort because the psychology of it is when, you know, what is beyond our knowledge uh, can create lots of uncertainty. Again, we are wired to be anxious about uncertainty. We are wired to be anxious about unknowns because unknowns could be threats. You know, what is behind that rock as we go hiking? I don't know, so we better pull out my spear. It could be a tiger, it could be Throg out to get me. Um, you know, what's behind that rock? The unknown tends to make us anxious. And so a critique of religion has been that what religion does is it plays on that certainty. It, it, it catches people where they ha lack that certainty, where they start to get anxious, and it puts God into that space, that empty space, to fill it with something comforting, so now the certainty is gone. That, that's sort of a psychological, uh, you know, sort of attempt at rebutting all religion. And Bonhoeffer, I think, is rightly calling this out as, uh, and saying, you know, too often we, we've relied on this. We've got to get rid of this God of the gaps stuff. Um, and he does say, and this is where kind of you can see his professor snobbiness comes out, because they are too lazy to think. I know that sounds harsh, but I guarantee you, you've got an uncle somewhere who, who is too lazy to think of something, who when pressed for an answer on a question, you know, will simply say, I'm just choosing not to look into that. Or the number of people, you know, that you run into and ask them questions about world events and they will just openly tell you that they just don't want to, they just don't want to think about it and they just don't know and they just don't care, right? You know, Jay Leno walking around L.A. asking you, you know, showing pictures of the vice president and people couldn't name who it was, right? I, I think there is a certain amount of that because if you see an unknown and you go, hmm, I wonder how I can figure that out. That is a lot more thinking than just lazily saying, I don't know what it is, must be God. And so, what is, so then we get to the deus ex machina. What is deus ex machina? It's a Greek word from Greek theater, and it literally, it means 
God from the machine. And so in Greek theater, there literally was a machine. It was a big, giant wooden crane. And they would go through the play, and if the plot got really tangled and messed up and it couldn't get to a resolution, sometimes they would literally just drop the god down off a crane. And, 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 and the god would appear from the crane and then basically set things straight. A little bit like, you know, the house is in chaos and the babysitter's here and the power's out, and then mom and dad come home from date night, right? and that mom and dad have to clear everything up. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, all right, boom. You know, and all, that ta all the tangled chaos is wrapped up. It was, a th it was a device they used in Greek theater to finish thing, to sort of finish up the play. In theology, it's kind of a word that we use for when we sort of assume a divine intervention as the answer to things. Um, it's just God from the machine. I don't know what happened, God must have done it, right? And in its worst form, deus ex machina thinking absolves one of responsibility, right? God did it, it's not my, not my fault, right? Bad things happen, God did it, you know? Uh, and, you know, oh, there's a bad flood, you know, God sent the flood. Well, maybe God sent the flood, but you're the ones that, you know, bulldozed all the trees. You're the ones that cut down all the trees that would have absorbed the water. You know, you're the ones that dug up, that, that tiled all the wetlands so you could farm them. So, you know, we did, we are responsible for a lot of the causes of these floods. God may send the rain, but we might be causing the flood. And if I just say, God did it, it's an act of God, that's what it is. It could be a way for me to duck responsibility for my own actions. All right. Uh, then he says, then he says, uh, and it's always the deus ex machina that they bring on them, seeing either for an apparent solution to an insoluble problem or as a strength of human failure. Or we can't do it, God did it. All right? And, and then he says, uh, of necessity, they can only go until their own strength, or by their own strength, they push the boundaries further so that God becomes superfluous. If you think of it as there being like a line between what we know and what we don't know, and God is on the other side of that line, the farther human knowledge pushes that line, the, the less space there is left for God. This is why you get atheists talking about how I'm, I'm more bold and I handle reality, you know. Well, everybody has their things that they resort to and their comfort things. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that you are intrinsically bolder as an atheist. Uh, it just isn't going to be a religious thing that you turn to for your comfort. But you can see where they're coming from is because the, the more that science essentially comes up with answers, the more that philosophy comes up with answers, the more that sociology starts to come up with answers to human behavior. If your God is only in the gaps of what we don't know, the more we know, the less there's room for God. And ultimately, you end up with Western Europe going, you know, if God is out there helping out, it isn't that relevant anymore, you know. God isn't necessary. I don't need a God from the machine. I can figure it out for the most part. I won't perfectly figure it out, but I'll get there, right? And um, so, okay, let's go on to the next slide. Okay, here we go. We'll read through this. I've come to be doubtful of talking about any human boundaries. Is even death 
which people now hardly fear? And is sin, which they now hardly understand, still a genuine boundary today? It always seems to me that we are trying anxiously in this way to reserve some space for God. I should like to speak of God not on the boundaries, but at the center, not in weakness, but in strength, and therefore not in death and guilt, but in man's life and goodness. As to the boundaries, it seems to me better to be silent and leave the insoluble unsolved. Ooh, there's a lot here. His thoughts are building, okay? So he's saying um, that this is that line again, right? This is that line again. Uh, and he's like, I'm not even sure I like to talk about there being these, this line between what we know and don't know and, and, and earth and th this, or even this life and the next life, even death, right? We're in a society that doesn't really fear death terribly much. We, uh, uh, you know, nobody cares about heaven or hell. That was always, you know, there, that was always the thing. If you could, if the philosophers could take God out of the universe and say, the universe runs just fine without God. It's all a closed system. Uh, we could always say, we could always fall back on, yeah, but in life after, you know? So again, we've pushed God now out of the universe. And they're like, wow, well, they really hardly fear death. So how do we talk about God if, 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 if we don't have that left? Or uh, sin, which you hardly understand, right? And you, you, think about, you think about this whole idea of sin. You talk to people these days about sin. Uh, you know, what people will do is they use, sin is now a, a term of pride, uh, a term of defiance and rebellion and assertion of your individuality. I'm a sinner, you know, and they'll get their Instagram handle will be sinner666, ha, 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 and they'll cover their body in tattoos and brag about their hookups, you know, and I'm sinning, I'm smoking weed, and I'm smoking this, and I'm sleeping around, ha, 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 I'm a sinner. They're not talking about I'm a sinner, I go out and I kick puppies and burn houses and steal things, right? But if you and, and, and why do they do that? Because how often has church, you know, when we talk about sin, we talk about temptation, it's almost always some sort of sexual vice, and that's the connotation for it. And so now the culture, instead of, uh, in, instead of embracing sin as something that, you know, the harm that we inflict on others, it has become the pleasures, the guilty pleasures that we indulge. But now that we're free from religion, you know, I can smoke away and sleep away. There we go, right? Uh, and, you know, and if people, and I think that that notion of sin is what he's saying is that Bonhoeffer's coming at sin from a much more collective perspective. He's looking at it as, you know, from World War II, like the biggest sin was, was electing Hitler. The biggest sin was not stopping Hitler. The biggest sin is fighting for Hitler. The biggest sin is what we do with our neighbors. Uh, you know, I could be very chaste and pious, but if I'm chaste and pious and I vote for Hitler, I've committed a sin. If I'm chaste and pious and my corporation spills toxic chemicals in the water, I'm still committing a sin. But churches have not, and I'm with Bonhoeffer on this one, we've not done a good job of talking about sin outside of it being about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, you know, and, and because of that, you know, 
people don't particularly feel a need to be redeemed. I don't feel like uh, the creator of the universe is going to condemn me to eternal hellfire because I was living with my boyfriend before we got married. And if I don't feel like I'm going to hell for that, then I don't need Jesus to save me from it. I don't need someone to die to save me from the hell that, that I'm going to go to because I'm hardwired to desire these things. Um, and, and again, if I'm not going to hell, why do I need Jesus to save me from it? Ooh, people don't even, if people, if, if, if you can't even use that as a boundary, now what? Where is Jesus? Where, where does God fit in, right? People have accused me, Lars, why don't you preach more about sin and forgiveness? I'm like, well, I do talk about sin, but I probably don't use that word a lot because I have the same problem that Bonhoeffer does. I find it to be such a loaded word, and unless I'm going to take the time to unpack it, I don't want to use it because I don't want to give the false impression, right, that, what, that, that the whole sum of Christianity is to try to convince you to be chaste and sober in order to get a heaven later and avoid the hell later, right? Um, I avoid using the word. I got the same hesitation. But that's what Bonhoeffer's saying is, right? God's beyond, you know? God's beyond. All right, they hardly understand it. Is that even still a boundary? Eh, not that anyone cares about. Um, and that they're anxiously preserving the space, right? They're nervous. If we lose the space, if people lose sin and the lack of knowledge, where will they need God? You know, that science, and, that, that science and sociology are putting us out of business. Well, they're only going to put you out of business if your God is beyond. It, they, they can only push God out of this world if God only exists beyond the boundary of this world anyways, right? So what does he say? He has this great, this great sentence. I'd like to speak of God not on the boundaries, but in the center, not in weakness, but in strength, not in death and guilt, but in life and goodness. Instead of God being after death, after sin, after, after I feel guilty about the sins I've committed, what if we find God in the world, in this life? in the center of things? What if Christianity isn't just about death and guilt, but it's about this life? I mean, it was, it was John, right? It was Jesus in the Gospel of John who says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He doesn't say, I came that they may have life after this miserable world and have it abundantly then. That's Jesus' own words, right? Jesus himself did not put God outside of the world. You know, God, loved, God did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The world, not destroyed and, and, not destroyed and people teleported out, but the world might be saved. So, we're get, so again, he's trying to get rid of that dualism between the scientific and the spiritual that dualism between what we know and, and sort of the spiritual is the oogie boogie that we don't know. Instead, he's saying, what if we reclaimed that our spirituality was in this world, here today, in the world that we have now? What if, what if God was in the center of things? What if we looked for 
you know, what if we looked for our clues about God and our knowledge about God, not focusing on after death, right? And what does that look like, you know? What does God in the center look like? How, how would you phrase that? If God is not up there on a chair, you know, up there in a chair, how, how do you draw God? How do you talk about God? How do you pray to a God who's here and you're not praying up there? How do we explore questions about God at the center? Again, he doesn't give a hard answer because I think he's asking the question of himself too. He doesn't know the answer. Uh, but uh, so, and then he says, he finishes up this paragraph with, it seems to be better to leave the insoluble unsolved. It's okay to leave some things unsolved. It's okay to let the things that we don't know be unknown and to focus our faith on the things we do. Isn't that interesting? That's flipping it around, right? Um, and that's essentially saying, I am going to reject the anxiety that comes from the unknown and be comfortable with, with it being unknown, right? I'm going to be comfortable knowing that there's going to be death. I'm going to be comfortable with not having knowledge. I'm going to be comfortable knowing that there are things I know and some things I don't, and that's just how it is. You know, so much, so much of having to provide answers and certainty to give comfort just plays into the argument of the atheists. Um, okay, let's go to the last slide here. Uh, we'll read this through. This is a continuation of the thoughts of the last one. Belief in the resurrection is not the solution of the problem of death. God's beyond is not the beyond of our cognitive faculties. The transcendence of epistemological theory has nothing to do with the transcendence of God. God is beyond in the midst of our life. The church stands not at the boundaries where human powers give out, but in the middle of the village. That is how it is in the Old Testament. And in this sense, we still read the New Testament far too little in the light of the old. How this religionless Christianity looks, what form it takes, is something that I'm thinking about a great deal, and I shall be writing to you again about it soon. You see how his thoughts build, and it builds, right? Boy, that, to some, that's heretical words. The resurrection is not the solution to the problem of death? What? Death is not the disease to be cured? What if instead, resurrection was simply the path to life? What if, what if death, or death is the path to life? What if death, instead of something to fear, is what we embrace? Sartre would be quite proud of that, right? We must embrace our being unto death. Um, but, you know, what if, you know, because isn't that how we build resurrection? Death is, a, death is a problem, resurrection's the cure. What if instead death was the path to life? What, what if you completely rethought it? That what, and, and then he gets into talking a little philosophically here. God's not the beyond of our faculties. Um, you know, again, this is God of the gaps, God after my knowledge. And then for a guy who doesn't believe in religious jargon, he throws out a phrase that would uh, stump most freshman philosophy students. The transcendence of epistemological theory, 
Wow, say that three times. Transcendence of epistemological theory. Try saying that three times really fast. Um, but he's just saying that theoretically, when you study the idea about God, the idea might be uh, something that goes above our knowledge. But that's, that, that's a philosophical thing. So God isn't beyond our, our lives. God doesn't transcend our world just because that's how it works in philosophy. I won't try to delve too much into this, but just to say God is beyond in the midst of our life. I mean, just think about what that means. God is beyond in the midst. It sounds like a contradiction. Sounds like, like you can't be both. You can't be both beyond and in the midst. But somehow God is. So somehow God is. That, that, that in the midst of our life, there is the beyond. The beyond is in, the, in our midst. And, and that's, very, that's very, very Old Testament thinking. We always have to remember Always got to remember, I, I beat this drum over and over. In the Old Testament, which is what, two-thirds, three-quarters of, of the text of our Bible, there's no heaven and there's no hell. There is neither eternal reward nor eternal punishment. They aren't there. Um, there's just this place called Sheol. It's a dusty place somewhere underneath where you sleep. That's it. And so the whole Old Testament <coughs> is not concerned in any way with life after death. There is psalm after psalm where they explicitly say, one cannot come back from Sheol, right? One cannot return from Sheol. So the whole theological enterprise of the Old Testament is based at looking at God in our midst. God may be beyond, but God is in our midst, right? That's, that's the pillar of cloud and fire as the people are going out of Egypt. The beyond of God is in their midst. God is beyond and in our midst. Uh, the Old Testament, the Old Testament does that very well. Um, and I really think that if you even look at Jesus, I would argue this, and this is where it, you'd get, Jesus did believe in a resurrection, but he didn't, I don't think, reading the Gospels, that when Jesus was talking about a resurrection, he was talking about the so-called three-tier universe. And the three-tier universe is the classic one that probably most of us have been taught. Heaven, earth, hell. Bing, let me get my hands there. Bing, 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 right? And, um, and we perceive these as different planes of existence, Right? There is a heaven plane where space-time is different. And there is a hell plane where space-time is different. And an earth plane in the middle where space-time is different. And the, they don't really even affect each other, but sometimes God will choose to teleport from one plane to another. And that these three separate planes exist. We really believe in that separate three planes of existence. It's not in the Bible. Uh, the very, very few mentions of something resembling a hell or punishment or stuff comes later in the New Testament, uh, which, you know, we could do, you do a whole, you fill books with that. But I believe that in the Old Testament, their understanding of God was, yes, God may be up in the heavens, and I think they sometimes meant that kind of literally, like they understood God is kind of up in the sky where the stars were. 
But God wasn't operating in a separate plane of space-time. God was going through space-time. I'll use that even though I'm imposing kind of a modern phrase on that. But God goes through space-time at the same rate as we do. Time moves on. And I think for Jesus it moves on too, which is why Jesus talks about a resurrection and doesn't talk about going to heaven. Because the assumption when one goes to heaven is that one is leaving this earth and going to a different plane of existence. But if there's a a resurrection that will happen when he returns and a new earth is created, then the timeline is still there. The timeline's still going along. And, And if you read the Apostle Paul, he talks about now we sleep, then we will be raised. So I think even the Apostle Paul believed that there was that in the Sheol thing. He was a good Jew, um, one of the best, right? He studied under the best scholars, and as a good Jew, he would have believed that God is in the same space-time as us, and Paul teaches that at the end of that, Jesus returns, a new heaven and new earth is recreated, and then we are raised. There's no bouncing between planes. So God essentially is the beyond in our midst. And so, if God is the beyond in our midst and not in a separate plane, then we got to rethink how this goes. Well, how does that look like? Well, go to your Old Testament. Three quarters of the Bible asks that question. What does it look like if God is in the midst of our lives? And he even says, Bonhoeffer even says down here, you know, we still read the New Testament far too little in the light of the old. We read it far too little in the light of the old. Um, and that the idea of God, you know, this whole idea that God is beyond the boundary of things, is it's all based on that three-tier universe. But what if, what if we just gave up the notion of the three-tiered universe? What if we gave up the notion of these separate planes of existence? What if there was only one timeline? What if God isn't beyond what we know, but right in the middle of what we know? What, 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 if, what if the path to God wasn't leaving the world, but in going deeper into the world? What if the place to find God's work wasn't outside of the community, but in the community, in our lives? Well, that's a whole different way of looking at it. It's not, that alien, it's not an alien view in the Old Testament. I don't think it's really an alien view to Jesus, but it is an alien view to modern Christianity. or as maybe Bonhoeffer would say, to modern religion. That we've piled on, those are some of the beliefs that have been piled on after the fact that we are clinging to, that we need to let go. And that it's not really heresy or blasphemy to let go because most of the Bible teaches the same thing. And that maybe the Christianity we have and a lot of the problems we have is because we're looking to the beyond and we need to be looking to the now. We need to be finding God in the midst of our life. And then he says again at the end, I'll be writing more about it soon. And he will be writing more about it. He'll never come to firm answers. All he'll leave is these kind of questions uh, that I hope, I hope, again, I, I hope this has been helpful. Um, and uh, that's all I'm going to do for today. About our time is about up anyways. And um, so some things to think about. And as always, uh, I'd love to hear your comments. Just don't be a troll. Uh, but legitimate comments, uh, questions, 
uh, thoughts and reflections, and um, hopefully this will help uh, you with your faith and kind of be a good thought-provoking for us in the church today. So God bless. Have a great week. I'll be back next week with the next edition, some more of these thoughts. Uh, Take care.